Uh, good evening, everybody. My name is Neil. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Neil. It's good to be here tonight. It's good to be sober. Welcome to all of our new friends, our chip takers, our birthday people. Congrats. Um, it's always wonderful to see birthdays and new people. And it brings me back every time, man. It really does. Uh, thanks for Thaddeus for coming out. Did a great job. Um, I love to uh, hear stories of recovery and especially the successful ones. There's plenty of the others, that's for damn sure. Um, I always start out my talk kind of with the, with the notion of the introduction. I always say, my name's Neil. I'm an alcoholic and a codependent, if that's okay with you. And um, <laughs> and that pretty much describes my world uh, as far back as I could remember. Uh, I, I've just been full of fear my whole life. Um, grew up in downtown Santa Ana. I have a Mexican father and an Irish mother, so I'm a Mexican with lots of freckles. And um, uh, whoops! I think it goes up there. No worries. Um, but in that life was uh, man. Thinking back, it's pretty interesting. It brings me back quite a bit. And I've, I've been on the road a bunch. I work quite a bit. Actually, I saw my Pittsburgh guy down here. I was just out in Pittsburgh. The other dude, too, picked up nine years right on. Great city. Certain the weather's starting to change a little bit, but it's only about 35, 40, which was just right before it gets a little too chilly out there. But a great town, man. Um, and everywhere I go, I, I, I love going to meetings. I love seeing the different people. Um, I love listening to the language of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's just a matter of time till I'm right at home. And I don't know about you guys, there's never been a place I felt right at home ever, even in my own home growing up. It's just a strange thing. And uh, where I go with this, we'll see, because I, there's been a lot going on. I was just in Phoenix on the way back through, and I ended up at this this really, really reminded me of the old school Charlie Street. You guys remember the old Charlie Street, some yeah. of y'all? And uh, those were the good old days. And this place in Phoenix reminded me very much of that. There was, there was a couple folks... Um, they needed to bite on some wallets in the meeting and it was, it was interesting, but I love to see it. I love to be around it and it brings me back. Um, so growing up down there in Santa Ana, I started getting a lot of trouble. There was a heck of a lot of abuse in my life. Um, and my old man, my, one of my early recollections, I think I was about six years old was when Cheech and Chong up in smoke came out and I was smoking a joint with my old man. And, uh, he was pretty much a kid himself, but he didn't know any better. Um, but at the time, godly, I, I, I now having kids and going through life and seeing a six-year-old, that's pretty interesting. But th that was just my story. And there was a, a lot of stuff that transpired with that, with that abuse in, in the household and everything that went with it in the neighborhood that I was in um, was, was a pretty, pretty interesting place. Uh, the way my mind had worked, Thaddeus was talking about a little bit too with his coin collection. It reminded me when I was a kid, my neighbor, who had some uh, older teenage kids that were, this was back when what we used to call it, what did we call it? Crystal, I think, before meth. Anyway, it was a long time ago, but, and they, they, they had some fun over there. But anyways, the, the neighbors, they worked with fiberglass, and he made boats and surfboards and all kinds of stuff, and he had these big drums with these big pumps in his backyard. And I was a little guy, and I remember we used to have this little sand pit thing in our backyard, and I had this little plastic pail. And I remember taking this pail, and I must have been, I don't know, young. And I went over to the neighbors, and I pumped a bunch of resin into this little pail. 
and I had a popsicle stick and I just thought it would be a great idea to go through the whole neighborhood and put resin in the front door keyholes of everybody's front door. And um, so I did it and I got, you know, I got my ass beat pretty good for that one, but, uh, but it just made sense to me. And that's just the story of my life. When I was supposed to stand up, I sat down. When I was supposed to go left, I went right. When I was supposed to do anything, it's my name's Neil and I'm sorry. I mean, it's just the way that it happened. <laughs> and I never understood what that was. And, I, and as I got older, and obviously the, the, um, the relief that came from drugs and alcohol were, were, um, were life-changing. And I came out of the oven that way. There was a lot of things that transpired early and with, within the family and a lot of stuff around that neighborhood that was crazy. Um, but then I started getting in a lot of trouble very early um, and started drinking very heavily. And I was a loner. I'd love to go out. We, we lived on this in this riverbed and, and I was a, a just a, I don't even know what you want to call it, but a loner for sure. Uh, my brother was perfect in my mind. He was the all-American boy. He married his high school sweetheart. He just he just retired like three, four weeks ago. He was the chief of the fire department up in Burbank, California. Um, it's the only woman his, he's ever been with, which is his wife. He's never done a drug in his life. And we came up in a very rough environment. He was in the same environment. We had completely different childhoods. It's really interesting when I look back at it. Um, and he's a great guy. And I, he's always been a hero of mine from that perspective. But we are completely on, uh, I mean, I... I think there's a lot of other black sheeps in here, I hope. <laughs> uh, but he, he could do no wrong. And, and I don't know about you guys. Uh, it was so hard for me, first of all, to feel safe anywhere. Um, and I remember like yesterday, even before the drink, whatever hit my lips or whatever I was doing, whatever get into my system, the relief had already begun before I even took a drink. It was like, okay, it's coming. And that relief was like something I couldn't explain. Um, so I started getting a lot of trouble. I ended up in rehabs all the time. And, and the first one I was in was, um, January 7th, 1988 was my sobriety date. And, um, this was new beginnings up in Central California. And I went up there after getting into, I got arrested a couple of times. I used to love to follow the Grateful Dead. You guys, some of these young people don't remember who the Grateful Dead. My first wife's name was Jerry Garcia, which was pretty interesting, but, uh, uh, <laughs> But very, very seldom went into the shows. We just hung out in the parking lots for those that remember. And we'd like to go far, far away for as long as possible. And those were the good old days. But that last time I um, got in a lot of trouble and I uh, ended up in that rehab. And I did not want to be here. But something was off, man. Something was always off. It was just this confusion in my mind, this confusion in my being, uh, just always in the wrong place, doing the wrong things and just never fit anywhere. And the only time I would find relief is when I would obviously drink and do a lot of other stuff. And, um, and getting into that rehab, I had, I was just so distorted in my mind. Um, and I remember going into that rehab, they put me in the room that didn't have the, um, the, uh, the door handles on the out on the inside for three or four days. Cause I got arrested that last time. And, uh, um, I, I had some trouble that time, but, um, Anyways, I was in there and I went into this group and a group was, you know, a round room, much smaller, maybe half this size. And there was like plastic furniture in this specific place. I don't know why, but this kid was talking about his life and he was talking about the abuse. He was a Mexican kid. He had tat. This is before tattoos or anything. And he was covered in tattoos. And um, um, 
and he was crying. And he was talking about the abuse that he had, that he had suffered from his, from his old man. And I'm like, who the hell talks about stuff like this? This guy's an idiot. Shut your mouth. What are you doing? You know, you're going to get beat up some more, whatever. But I kept listening and I kept listening. I said, man, I could relate. I've never, ever been around anything like that where people would discuss what was going on with them. And I heard it and I heard everything. And I remember being in meetings like this and I heard everything. I wouldn't talk. I wouldn't say a whole lot, but I could hear everything. And that guy became somewhat of this silent mentor that I had in there. When I got out of that solo room uh, by myself, they put me in a room with him. And uh, that was Eskimo number one. And the Eskimo story always resonates with me. There was an old speaker years ago that my sponsor used to give me his tapes. And I was fortunate enough to listen to him a couple of times in person. His name was Bob Earl. And Bob Earl had a way of describing the alcoholic mind as good as anybody that I've ever come across. And the way that I was taught, we used to call it chewing the carpet position. When you're laying on the floor and the pain is so bad that your mind won't shut up, you ended up in that kind of position on the floor. And that. And Bobby Earl would talk about that. But he talked about the Eskimo story. And the Eskimo story was that there were these two guys sitting in a bar having a drink one day. One guy was, was very spiritual and talking about the birds are chirping and the bees are buzzing and life is beautiful. And the other guy was an agnostic. And the agnostic guy says, I don't buy any of that stuff. What are you talking about? All this spiritual stuff. He said, well, why would you say such a thing? He said, I'll tell you exactly why. I was trapped in Alaska in the middle of the blizzard. And I fell to my knees and I looked up to the sky and I said, God, if there is one out there, you'll get me out of this blizzard. And the spiritual guy sitting with him at the bar said, well, you must believe in something because you're sitting here with me having a beer. And he says, nah, right after I said that prayer, some Eskimo came along and showed me the way back to town. Now, the subtlety of that story didn't even hit me at first. But I don't know about you. I had Eskimos showing up all the damn time. I just couldn't see them. And they were there. And underneath all this stuff is where this stuff really started to transpire with me. And that first one with me, I was always taught that before I got here, okay, I, I kind of had a pass. But once this stuff started to resonate and get its way within me, then I had to gain some responsibility. And that first estimate was that guy named Eddie in that rehab. And Eddie would sit there with me and we would talk for hours and hours every night. And he started talking about his past. And I'm like, wow, we got something very similar and a lot of the other stuff. And obviously our, our histories. And he had a sister and his mom and his dad wasn't in the picture. My dad was long gone and he was in and out of my life many times and crazy stuff. And it was, it was my first guy. And Eddie stayed there and, uh, for about two weeks after I was there. And then when he got out, we used to have a family group that everyone would come in on Saturdays and meet with, you know, the families. And we'd have this little deal. And Eddie got out and he really allowed me to help find to lay this foundation down. First first week he got out, he came back to the Saturday group with the families. Eddie, what's up? He met his sister and his mom. It was really great. The second week, Eddie came, uh, Eddie's mom and sister showed up and Eddie wasn't with them. I'm like, where the hell's Eddie? said, unfortunately, he went back out and he overdosed on heroin and he died. And that was the biggest blow that I could possibly experience at that time of my life. And then it really resonated deep in my soul that we're playing with a deadly disease. And too many people treat it like a common cold. And I'm all son of a gun. And I sat under this drinking fountain and cried my eyes out. And realizing for whatever reason, and that was the first true moment of clarity that I honestly understood at that moment 
that I have an opportunity. And there is something that has been given to me, which is this program of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I didn't even realize the depth of what it is. Alcoholics Anonymous is far, far greater than the sum of its parts. I'm telling you, man, the power that happens in this place is like nothing I've ever experienced. I'm hoping I'll be able to elaborate that and, and articulate that in a way that could hopefully help somebody in here because I remember those guys. I remember Eddie. I remember Bobby Earl. I remember Sandy Beach. I remember my sponsor. I remember these Mount Rushmore type figures that allowed this kid to be able to put a foundation together to allow me to change my life and become a man. Um, it's interesting to think back, but that catapulted me into Alcoholics Anonymous like uh, like nothing else. And I was scared to death that if I did anything wrong, I was going to I was going to die like my buddy Eddie. So, I mean, I went crazy. I was going to meetings every day. And if there was time, I'd go to two. My sponsor had the thing that he began to tell me, which is you read five pages every day. You go to a meeting every day. You say you're obviously third, seventh and 11th prayer every day. You read page 62, 63. You read page 86 through 88. You read page 25 on and on and on. And you do it every day, no matter what. And the most important thing is you don't pick up a drink or a drug no matter what. Are we are, are we clear? They said, yes, sir, we're clear. I said, great. If you do that consistently, you'll lay a foundation Alcoholics Anonymous. And I still find that to be true. And he wasn't so much a, a, you know, a hard ass from that perspective, but he was very direct and very honest. And my grand sponsor, which I just reiterated to you just a minute ago, he would say stuff. And he had a place up in Fullerton. And he was a very docile man. His name was Bob Houston. I don't know if any of you guys ever heard of Bob, but he passed away a while ago. But Bob was a uh, an old street drunk that helped a lot of people get sober. And he probably had close to 50 years when he died. And Bob was really docile. And he smoked this back of smoking. Oh, my God. You know, you'd have meetings just like this. And this side would be smoking and this side would be non-smoking. I mean, go figure, right? But anyway, that's the way it worked. But... But Bob, God, he could smoke. Um, and I remember when I first met him, he would say stuff so docile. And he'd say, have you read the big book from cover to cover? I said, no. He said, well, how willing do you think you're going to be to stay sober the rest of your life if you're not even willing to read a book? And then he'd shrug his shoulders and walk away. Oh, <laughs> well, what the hell? What's up with that? And then he would say stuff like I just mentioned it. He said, he said, you got, you realize that alcoholism is a deadly disease and too many people treat it like a common cold and they end up dead from this thing. And he'd walk away <laughs> and these little seeds would plant in your head. And he, and he would say stuff like, you know, if it was a prerequisite for a person to lose their left arm, if they went out and drank and got loaded in Alcoholics Anonymous, There'd be a lot of people in AA without a left arm. <laughs> and, and, and it was very factual. And I would sit with this guy time and time again. And God, he was so gracious. I, was, I played some baseball in my day. And I'd go by his place before we go to a meeting. This was back in the Dodger days. They had an old third baseman named Pedro Guerrero, if anyone remembers Pedro back in the day. And Pedro would get into the batter's box, and he's obviously Dominican, but he, he would cross himself but he, before he'd get in the box. And this is the way Bob was. And I said, I remember asking Bob, I said, what's he doing? He said, I don't know, but it doesn't mean shit if he can't hit a fastball. <laughs> and that was Bob. And I'm so grateful for Bob. Um, 
because he was so patient with a kid like me and I was so afraid and he was able to get into my life to where I felt safe around this guy. And he began to educate me about what alcoholism is. Obviously the spiritual malady, it's a mind power disease and it centers in my mind, not in my body. And uh, he began to really take me through those steps and my sponsor, Harry as well. Um, and those guys saved my life. And through that education, um, early on, it was, it was really amazing to think back to, um, to how patient these guys were. And Harry, when he first started sponsoring me, he probably had 14 years. And I think about this all the time. And Harry's helped a lot of guys. I mean, a lot of guys. And he's 50 years sober now, and he's still alive, and he's doing okay. But um, I, I, I go off on stuff like this because the reality of kind of what I'm talking about. But what I was going to say was, so Harry was 14 years sober when he started sponsoring me. He's must have sponsored hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people over the years. And in a weird way, statistically speaking, I am the longest tenured sponsee that he has had. So from zero to 14 years, there's been hundreds of people just like in this room. I'll never forget my second meeting was a room like this up at St. Jude Hospital in Placentia. It was a little bit bigger than this. And at the end of the meeting, there was a sp speaker, his name's Milton. Uh, and he said, I want everybody to look to their left and look to their right down their respective row. He said, one person statistically in each of these rows is going to stay sober for the rest of their lives. Do you want that person to be you? And I heard that and I understood what he was trying to say. And I still find that to be factual to this moment, to this day, right now, exactly what's transpired in my life. And why I was saying that is these guys, Bob, and the things that they would tell me were very similar to that. So what, we were, what I'm dealing with is this deadly disease. And if you want to treat this thing, it's going to require the treatment, which is dealing with what this mind power disease is all about. It centers in my mind. And I begin to get this education through the steps. And through that solution for me is obviously the main purpose of this whole thing is to enable us to find a power greater ourself that's going to solve our problem, which is my mind. And uh, I don't know how or why. When I think about this, I was reading, the, you know, the traditions early and we've seen them obviously over the years. Um, the old 705 Club up in Fullerton was a great spot. Some great people that were really instrument instrumental in my early sobriety. Oh, man, this little old man named Cecil. I don't know if you, anyone ever met Cecil, really spiritual dude. But um, these guys were so patient by educating me about what alcoholism is. And I, um, I remember it so, so graciously uh, walking through, understanding what the principles of these steps are about and how the implementation of that would really quiet the obsessions of the mind and allow the sufferer, which is me, to live happily and usefully whole. That's what this whole thing was all about. That's why I went to do the drugs and alcohol. That's why I did everything to quiet the mind. Mm -hmm. See, that mind is with me today. It's still with me as much as it's ever been. It's just changed dramatically because I have a treatment for it. I just got back last night, and I'll tell on myself, um, I was on the road for about 10 days working, and my wife, God bless her, um, and she's doing laundry, but I wanted to put my clothes in the, I've been gone. I wanted to wash some clothes. And uh, I took the clothes out of the dryer without fluffing them. And I threw them on top of the dryer. What's wrong with that, right? I need to do some wash. Don't you understand? And you learn as time goes on, you better shut your mouth when you need to. But of course I did. And you guys get the gist. And once again, I got to the position where I said, honey, I was wrong. <laughs> Excuse me. I was, I was wrong, honey. And I'm, and I'm sorry. 
And, uh, you know, the funny thing is, is when I think back to that, you know, it took me forever to even have the ability to, uh, I, even st standing up here speaking is one thing, but just that I was so afraid of people. I remember going to, the, to a, a grocery store or a liquor store and I would buy a, a, a pack of gum or something. And I didn't even have the audacity to ask the guy behind that. You can just throw the receipt away because I was so afraid that he might think less of me if I didn't take just crazy shit, excuse my language, but just ridiculous stuff. I was so screwed up mentally. Um, and it's still there. And what I've learned is a lot of that is what alcoholism is and where it centers and how, how it, uh, it, it appears and, and presents itself in my world. So these guys got me into the steps. There was an old guy too. I always think of this Mount Rushmore thing. Um, and Sandy Beach was another one too that I was fortunate enough to listen to up in LA years ago. And Sandy would say, uh, he started out this particular talk. And I remember a lot of people in that room and a couple of them just recently passed away that couldn't hear a thing. I remember when the old Canyon Club first opened, when that panel was up at, that, at, uh, at the opening meeting and I had a bunch of newcomers with me and it was one of the best meetings I've ever been to. And these old timers are just going off on these panels. It was wonderful. And I got these two new guys sitting with me and I'm leaning over. I'm like, did you hear that? What are you talking about? <laughs> Who are these old guys? Did you hear that? And they didn't hear anything. And for whatever reason, thank God I heard it. And when Sandy was talking that night, he started his talk in a room similar to this, similar size. And he said, what is spirituality? What is it? This was his opening line. Everyone's like, what the hell? Where's this guy going with this? He said, I don't know. It'll change from today. It'll change tomorrow. But for where he sat at the time is spirituality is the recognition and the knowledge of uh, spirituality at that point, how did he put it? Is that there's an entirely new way to look at everything. And he was quiet for a second. He said, think about that. There's an entirely new way to look at everything. And uh, that's what Alcoholics Anonymous slowly has been doing in my life with the implementation of these steps. And I'll, that's still one of the greatest talks I've ever I've ever been to. It was such a great time. And, and I would do stuff like that. I would sit in a meeting. These guys would be talking and I would be looking around. I'm like, did you guys hear this? And it still happens all the time. And I'm so grateful for that. But I think back to when I first started going through those steps. And um, at the time, I had no idea uh, of how dedicated it was going to it was going to need to be done to be able to practice alcoholics Anonymous in my daily life. And it didn't happen overnight. But then when I got introduced to what this stuff was all about and how my mind would work, it really began to change uh, my outlook on everything. There was a guy named Bob Anderson from years ago um, who talked and really educated me about the, the mind power disease. And uh, a good example of this, which I, I talk about once in a while. Today we had a lunch for my stepdaughter. Gosh, she just turned 30 years old. It's crazy. But um but I've been with my gal now, shoot, for almost 17 years. And I never was around girls. The parents in the room, I'm sure we got plenty of them. I have a 19-year-old son. He's going to college now. And I had these girls that have been a part of my life for a long time, almost 17 years, the older one. And, um, and when they were first around, they were kind of like my roommates. So we eventually continued on this thing, which I was very difficult and very, very challenged about personal relationships. I was born and dedicated to Alcoholics Anonymous. That was my world. I, I'll get into it maybe. But anyhow, so these girls became a part of my world. And now I have the two girls and my wife 
gal at the time, and me. So the way I am as a dude is I just keep my distance. I'd go upstairs, I'd watch my sports, they would do all their things around, and I never understood about what it's like to build a relationship. So I just shut the heck up. The next thing you know, time would pass. So as long as I stay out of your way, you're good. As long as I stay out of my way, we're good, and that will be fine. We're basically roommates. And then I don't know about you guys. You guys, ever, I, I call it building a case or self-talk. You guys ever do any self-talk stuff? So I would go to work, and I got all the girls living in the house now. They're going to school, and they're not paying rent, mind you. That's the first self-talk thing. So I'd be driving home in the evening, and I know for a fact there's going to be a bunch of dishes in the sink, and there's going to be trash that needs to be taken out. And the young one always had a little boyfriend with her. So I'd come in and there'd be crap in the sink. I'm like, what the heck? And I'm already building this case, self-talk. And these sons of bitches, don't they understand who I am? I'm doing out there. I'm the breadwinner. Blah, 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 blah. And I'd take it to my sponsor. He'd laugh his ass off, as most normal people probably would. <laughs> um, but then as that began to happen, uh, and listening to some of the stuff that these guys taught me about, he said, Neil, what would happen if you went in and just did the dishes? Well, you don't understand. That's not my point. You know, they, they need to understand. I said, well, let, let's just try to go do the dishes. I said, fair enough. So I would come in, and then we started to develop this relationship through the practice of what we're talking about in the program, which I started to have this inner dialogue with my higher power and my sponsor, who, mind you, aren't present. But I would have this dialogue in my brain. So I'd be driving home, and I'd say, God, all right, I, it's Thursday. I know that the trash man's coming tomorrow. Now, the way, where we live is the way our garage is. Right on the far right is where our trash cans are. The garage goes up. You literally take the trash cans out and you put them right to the right of the curb. That's it. They'll come pick them up. But I rest assured, I started building a case. I promise you those trash cans are taken up. And I do stuff like this all the time. And then they would ask, okay, well, why don't you just take them out? And I did. And in doing that, Believe it or not, which is very strange to me, is when how and when relationships started to change. So I'd start talking to my God and I go in and I do the dishes. I take the trash cans out and I would try everything I could. There I go again, building a case. And then I would do that for a couple of weeks, for a month, sometimes for two months. And then I'd come home one day without having to say a word. And this is the crazy stuff that happens around here. Yeah. And the dishes would be done. And I didn't have to, you know, confront anybody. I didn't have to tell them who's boss. I didn't have to tell them anything. So there's something going on around here on the spiritual side that I had no clue what it was about. And on top of that, so then I would start doing stuff like that. I'm all sudden, And I would start talking, got in this funny, blah, 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 right? This like silent passenger that I'm walking around with. And it was amazing. And Bob Anderson used to talk about that early on. So what he would say, so he went through this and, and everything has been some sort of practice that I've learned somewhere. And he came across an, an older gal who had this peace about her. And, and how did he, how did she gain this peace? Because he was always just so honorary and always at, 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 at ease, you know, discord with somebody or something. And she got into reading Sermon on the Mount every morning as part of her daily ritual. Great, whatever. But in the Beatitudes in there, there was a lot that goes on, and I don't need to get into it at this point. But so he started doing that. And part of the deal was she she suggested to him of what I'm kind of talking about now, which was try to go into your day and take God with you. Whatever you do, 
and try to see if you can practice talking to God more than you talk to yourself in the day that you're in. It's not a very novel concept, but I'd never thought of it. Because she would say, if you're not talking to God, then who are you talking to? Well, me. Well, what's your problem? My mind. Well, where do you live most of the time? In my mind. Oh, well, that's a pretty keen concept, right? And then she would say another thing like, okay, well, if you don't start practicing talking to God first thing in the morning and tapping into your program, then you probably don't have one. Even though you may have been sober a long time. Pretty interesting stuff. So why I say that is this is what I started to practice in relation to my daughters, my stepdaughters, and obviously the um, these uh, dishes and trash can caper. So after doing this for a little bit, I end up in my room, which I was totally fine with. And mind you, by this time, some of the dishes would start to get done. I get a knock on my door and it's the little one. And she's now, shoot, probably 19. I don't know. But she's like, Neil, I said, yeah, can I come in? Absolutely. Come on in. She lays on the bed and she broke up with her boyfriend. And she starts crying. And I, I've never had an emotional conversation with this girl. And the only thing I started to practice is this stuff I'm talking to you about, this walking with God and talking to God and be conscious of what these steps are all about in my life. And, she, and, and I'm sitting there because I'm a freaking baby. I'm an emotional baby. I'll tell you that right now. And I'm sitting there just whimpering like, I don't know what. And I just listened and I didn't say a word. And the next thing you know, within 10 minutes, she got up and walked out of the room. Luckily, I didn't speak because I would have been a blubbering fool because, <laughs> because I see I'm present and I'm seeing what's happened and happening in that very moment. I do it all the time in meetings. I'll sit up here while you guys were, were picking up your chips and I see the new people and it just kills me, man. And when I was in Houston and, and I I'm a, get very emotional because so many of us don't have the opportunity to make it. For whatever reason, I heard what Bob Earl said. I heard what my sponsor said. I heard and understood that how important the steps are to implement into my life. But I remember people standing up here and talking about this kind of stuff. That's all fine and dandy, but how do you do that? Keep coming back. It's going to be great. I couldn't buy that. See, my, me and my father never really rekindled. We're totally cool, but I'd see people come up and their whole families would be reassembled and everyone's, you know, happy-go-lucky. That wasn't my story. That isn't my story. But I live a damn good life. I really live a good life. And, and, the, and why that is is because the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, people that came across, these Eskimos that came through my life, and slowly but surely, I was able and continue to try to be willing and able to get out of my head and to do this walking with the God thing. Because going through those initial steps, obviously I was taught in a unique way um, of how these principles are implemented in my life. And that acceptance of step one has been vital, but needing others is, has been a huge thing. So for me at this phase of my life, I always use the Walmart analogy. So if I go to Walmart, which I hate to do, Maybe somebody likes it. I'm not a big fan, but more power to you. And when I walk in there, I look for somebody with a yellow vest on as soon as I humanly possibly can. And I'll ask them where the shampoo is. And they'll say it's on H27. I'll say, thank you very much. And I go get the damn shampoo and I get the heck out. But there has been many times in my life where I'm going to go into that wall and I'm going to find that darn shampoo, don't you? And I don't need anybody's help and blah, 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 blah. And that needing others thing, which is basically what become sponsorship was in many aspects of my life, has been a huge, huge tool. Uh, the trust of what transpires in here and the honesty of what transpires in here and the sharing of that. 
One thing that brings back that memory is I'll never forget um, when I did my first fourth and fifth step with my sponsor. And I had really no idea other than the fact that was the next indicated thing to do. Uh, but I was sitting at his kitchen table and it was a heck of a lot of writing. And he listened to me for a long ass time. And when I got up off of that table, I didn't have the decency. I could not look him in the eye. I could not look up. And I'm looking at my shoes and I'm looking at the floor and I'm completely embarrassed. And he takes his forefinger and he grabs me by the chin and he makes me look up at him. And I'm whimpering because I'm the baby that I am. And, uh, and he says, kid, it's going to be all right. And I love you just the way you are. And you don't have to be anybody else at any time than the person you are right now. And we're going to get through this. You're going to be just fine. So I was taught to how, how to have relationships from a man. I always sought this soft side that I want to find in a woman per se. Um, but I was taught through a sponsor and the sponsor taught me how to be kind and for, and, and for whatever reason, I trusted him. I knew without any hesitation, his only intention was one to help me through those steps and make my life as good as it could possibly be. I knew that to my bones. And uh, by going through that and trusting that man, and we did a lot of great stuff together. And it's weird to see him now because he's getting up there in age. And we've done a lot of retreats, a lot of great stuff, a lot of talks. And, um, and they're really special moments. So when I think back to those early times, when I see newcomers in the meetings, when I... Um, for some reason, I don't know why, as scared as I was of people, something transpired in here that I can't explain. And I knew it because I would sit back there and I would not let you guys knew I heard it, but I heard it. And there was a language of the heart that was transpiring in Alcoholics Anonymous that was undeniable. And I wanted it. I didn't know how to go about getting it. But every now and then you're going to get an opportunity. And even if you're as scared as I am, go seize that opportunity with everything you freaking got and listen to whoever you have. I went, I got a sky. I ended up playing baseball. My brother was the, the stud at everything. He got me playing baseball much later in my, in my, my junior year. And I was sober a year. Um, I had these long dreads back then you could smoke in high school. I'm smoking and, and sports was the last thing I gave up because our whole family was athletic. And um, long story short, he walked me down there, introduced me to the coach. She said, you know, obviously you can't smoke if you want to play baseball. I said, I'll, I'll, I can work on it. So Switching from scotch to brandy, they would tell me, is uh, Copenhagen became my next best friend. But that's a whole nother deal. But anyway, um, so uh, I ended up playing baseball. I, I, I didn't even realize that, um, you know, 500 was a good batting average. I didn't realize that doing some of the stuff I was doing, all I would do literally was a, would apply what Alcoholics Anonymous had taught me. I'd show up early. I'd help the new guy. And then I would leave and help clean up and then I'd get off to a meeting. And, um, and when I think back to those days, I ended up going up to, a, I, I played there and I played for quite a while and I, and, and it continued to happen. Um, and I got a scholarship up to university of Nevada up in Reno, Nevada and, uh, the wolf pack. And we ended up having a great time there. And I was, I was fortunate enough to get drafted. I played eight years professionally, um, as a result of AA and spent many times out in that, Pittsburgh, Steel City area, um, Gold Steelers. <laughs> yes. uh, but I think back to those days and I think about my brother and I think about some of that stuff. But it, I remember, um, well, there's so many memories come to mind with that. I, I, I rem So 
I'll tell you guys this story. So back then we, I had these dreadlocks, but which don't ask me why, but anyway, uh, it was part of the, but I, they wouldn't get under my hat. So I had to shave my head and then I have to put them up here and put them under my hat so I can go out there. But then my, my buddy, who was a black dude who had much better construction with his hair to be able to get his dreads better than I could. Long story short, he said he told me to use Tide and you make a paste out of these tied and you clump it in your hair. And then it'll really make the, now I know this is so interesting for so many people in this room, but it, but why, why I say that was, is I went, I, it was summertime, I was playing ball and uh, I have all this tied in my dreads underneath my hat. I didn't even realize what I was doing and it was so hot. I went over to the, to the drinking fountain and I filled up my hat with water and I put it back on my head. And the next thing you know, I was, I, I was the laughing stock of my baseball team, which they still have never let me forget that to, the, to as far back as I can remember. That made me think of that. But anyhow, similar to what I'm talking about, why I was saying that. So I was a senior in high school. I was sober a couple years. All we would do is I'd go to that baseball field and we'd go pick up the new guy and we'd go find meetings. And then we, my sponsor used to speak all over the place. And it was just a habitual practice of what would transpire in AA. And, um, and that summer I was still playing ball and, uh, there was a bunch of us and we ended up having a tournament in late August up at, at USC. And, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do the next year. And all I would do is exactly what I was talking about. So long story short, at the end of that, there was some famous guys that happened to all play on the team, which I didn't know at the time. And one of the, one of the dads who played for a long time introduced me to the coach at Saddleback Junior College right down the road here. His name was Jack Hodges. And within school was starting within the next week, maybe less than that. So he calls me over after the game. All I know is I got to get to a meeting. So Bob says, hey, this is coach Jack Hodges from down the street. He wants to talk to you. I said, great. I got to hurry because the game just ended. I knew I have to go pick up a newcomer. And he said, Jack asked me, he said, yeah, what are you doing next year? I said, next year, I got to pick up a newcomer in about 30. I can't. I was so crazed with the way my life was. All I knew is I had to pick up this new guy within a very short period of time. And we had to make sure we got to the meeting because I was way up in L.A. He said, what are you doing next year? I said, I, I don't know. He said, would you like to play ball for me? I said, uh, I, I, have to, I have to call somebody. I'd have to call my sponsor. Because I just, that's what I did. So I said, can I get back to you tomorrow? Absolutely, but I'm going to be on the road, and he's doing his recruiting thing. So I went home, and I called Harry, and I said, Harry, this guy wants me to come play, play baseball for, with him, what do you, uh, for him. What do you think? He said, absolutely, go for it. I said, great. So I called him back, left him a message. He called me back. He said, great, I'm going to be on the road. I'm going to leave an envelope on the outside of my little mail thing on my door, office door. It'll have your name on it. Come get it, because school starting on Monday and take it up to the office and ask for Doris. And I did that. So Monday comes along and the only thing I knew how to do is the next indicated thing. I went and grabbed the envelope, went up to the office, looked for Doris, I said, Doris, yes, hi. Oh, and she opens it up. She was a nice little Leo Jack, I'll just send you up, blah, blah, blah. Well, take a seat, Sonny. And I sat down on the thing and next thing you know, within about 15 minutes, she says, welcome to Saddleback College. And this is happening in a very short period of time, three or four days. And she said, the only thing it says in here after you're done with your classes, it says you have practice at 1.30. Make sure you're there and don't be late. That was the note that Coach Hodges had in that envelope. I said, fair enough. And that's what I did. And then next thing you know, I'm going to school. And I didn't think I did. It's just what I did. 
And that has been the basis of a lot of the things that transpire. If I can get the hell out of my own way, it's amazing what transpires. If I can allow somebody to come in my life and truly take their direction, which is a hard thing because this mind will go quickly. I mean, it will go quick. And that's where my disease centers in my mind to this day. And then after doing that, obviously the same thing applied. I, I, I did very, very well there unbeknownst to me. And I ended up going on and playing for quite a long time. And um, it was a hell of a fun ride. Met a lot of people and was able to see the world. And I'd do it again in a heartbeat if I could. And the biggest part of that is I, uh, I had my son. And my son ended up playing through high school. And he's now going up to USC now as a student because he studied. And I tried to hit baseball. That's about as good as I could do. But I wasn't a very good student. But, um, but I was able to coach him uh, for the last 19 years of his life. And I never missed a freaking day, guys. And uh, and my old man and everything that transpired with that, and there's still there's still scars, there's still pain, there's still they'll still hurt, there always will be. Uh, but he was never there. My sponsor was there. Alcoholics Anonymous has always been there. Um, I've seen so many times where people will come in and hope that they get their families back. They would hope a lot of things that would transpire when we'd sit in these rooms and we have more brothers than you could possibly imagine. But I'm worried about the brother that I never had out there. I have more father figures and aunts and uncles than you could ever possibly imagine that I found in AA. But I'm so worried about what's going on out there. I would have so much love and relationships of things that aren't given to me by blood and family that I'd find in here that soothed my soul, that healed a brokenness that was within me that my family could never put back together because they just never had those skills, but I found it in here. So the delusion that transpires in this mind will keep me away from the good things that have always been available to me as a result of working these steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's really something else. So when I think about that kid, my, I, I don't recall maybe once, but my whole life, my old man ever telling me you love me. For whatever reason. Only reason why I say that, because my son was just at our house, because I don't see his ass now, because he's up at school having the time of his life, which I'm happy for him. But I tell that son of a bitch I love him till he just tells me to shut the hell up, Dad. <laughs> and it's not going to stop. It's absolutely not going to stop. Because the gifts of what I see, when we're doing what we need to be doing, there's something that's going down in here that is absolutely second to none. What I feel when I sit up here and talk to you guys is that God is in this room and he's smiling and he's pleased because we're the broken ones. It's almost like a spiritual orphanage, if you will, trying to do what we can to make it from the brokenness that we've experienced uh, and doing it together a day at a time. And we've been given a chance and you've been given a chance. And if you're new, man, grab on and don't let go no matter what. And that mind is going to talk and it's going to do what it's going to do because it wants to kick your ever loving, you know what, but there is a solution. And almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of pride, the confession of shortcomings, which the process absolutely requires. So do the work. And we saw that it really worked in others. And we've come to believe in this hopelessness and futility of life as we have been living it. We're approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, which there's plenty of us. There was nothing left for us to do but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven and we've been rocketed into a fourth dimension that we couldn't even imagine. And that's exactly what's transpired in my life. And man, it still gives me goosebumps to this day that I could have missed it all and still can. We heard that earlier. I have the daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of what I do in the day that I'm in. There is no doubt. I know it to my bones. 
and I am not screwing around with my seat, people. I'm sorry if that's uh, I, I do an awful lot. I do more today, and I understand the disease I suffer from more today than I ever did when I was new, and it is a precious gift. So I implore you all to please treat that precious gift exactly what, like it is. I want to read one thing real quick. Um, you got it. This guy's on it. Pittsburgh. <laughs> I love it. But my sponsor had always read this, and he's getting up there, and I don't know how many more times I'll be able to do it. But he always used to read this at the end of his talks, and I'll read it to you all because it really has impacted my life um, over the years hearing him read it. But it's a little poem. It's called Touch of the Master's Hand. And it states, it was battered and scarred and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste his time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bid, good people, he cried. Who starts the bidding for me? One dollar, one dollar. Do I hear two, two dollars? Who will make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three, but no. From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the loose strings, he played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as an angel sings. The music ceased and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, what now am I bid for this old violin as he held it up with its bow? One thousand, one thousand, do I hear two, two thousand, who will make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, going in God, said he. The audience cheered, but some of them cried. We just don't understand. What changed its worth? Swift came the reply, the touch of a master's hand. And a man with his life out of tune, all battered with bourbon and gin, his auction cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once, he's going twice, he's going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd can never quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that's brought by the touch of the master's hand. So I appreciate y'all having me come out here tonight. Um, enjoy your evening and have a fabulous week. Thank you guys very much. Let's thank our speaker, Neil, again.